call me Angelo. But if you want to call me Evangelos Petros Tsarukas and bring me back to my childhood, go ahead. And now for something somewhat derivative. <laughs> Stand and deliver. Welcome to a belated episode of Stand and Deliver. I thought I'd be taking a short break over New Year, but it was just too easy to continue doing nothing. What it means is that I've failed to adequately plug the Hobart Comedy Festival, but by all accounts it was a success, and depending how embarrassing it'll sound out of context, I might still run some Hobart Festival-related material in an upcoming episode of Stand and Deliver. Meanwhile, I haven't missed the boat on Sydney's Cracker Comedy Festival, Sydney's Big Laugh Festival. That's right, we're so funny we can't fit all the laughter into one festival in Sydney. The Adelaide Fringe Festival. Hey, I love this one. The Adelaide Fringe used to be a biennale. It used to be on every second year. But South Australia's Labor Party promised, if elected, to make it an annual event. Only they forgot to check with everyone. So, suddenly, Labor's back in power in the state of South Australia and there's an annual Adelaide Fringe. So a lot of people are scrambling together to make sure that this year's Adelaide Fringe is at least as good as last year's Adelaide Fringe. And, to be honest, I'm not in a position to tell you whether it will or won't be. I can just tell you that from what I know about the comedy, it's going to be just as good this year as it was last year. So, the Adelaide Fringe is coming up. And if you don't know... Adelaide Fringe is the second biggest fringe festival in the world. At least, that's what they say. Things are also holding up in preparation for the 21st Melbourne International Comedy Festival. There are raw comedy heats happening now right around Australia, and they'll culminate with a national final in the Melbourne Festival. There'll also be other events happening around Australia along the way to the actual Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and I'll keep you informed about those and everything else comedic that I can in upcoming episodes. Meanwhile, in this episode, we'll be hearing from Russell Peters, a Canadian comic who can sell out an Australian theatre tour purely by word of mouth. We'll also be hearing from Angelo Tsarokas, who supported Peters on his last tour and who is about to return to Australia doing a tour of his own. But first, expat Aussie comic Brendan Burns, dealing with one of his favourite topics, parochialism. Live before a West Country audience in England. Uh, I like being in the West Country, I dig the West Country, because of course you go, what do you do in the West Country? And everyone goes, we wait for Glastonbury. <laughs> That's it. Because there's very little crime, because there'd be no point. <laughs> if someone stole a car here, everyone on the street would just go, that's Bob's car. <laughs> but, but that's not Bob. <laughs> Quick, call Constable Jones Brooks and Constable Jones Brooks Everton. There's been a crime. <laughs> a crime? Must be someone from Bath. <laughs> Quick, rev up the tractor. <laughs> Constable Jones Brooks gets in hot pursuit of the stolen vehicle, getting his retarded son to lean out the window, going, Who are, who are, who are? 
gold for Australia. <laughs> All right, I know it's a shit attempt at the accent, but hey, when you guys go, G'day, Sava Shrimp, home the Barbie, sounds bang on to me. <laughs> And that was Brendan Burns performing Hello West Country, the opening track from his CD, Misspent Childhood. Brendan just ended a two-week residency at Sydney's original comedy store, and I did catch up with him for a yak, and I'll be playing it in an upcoming episode of Stand and Deliver. Meanwhile, if you want to own any of his CDs, you can actually pay to download them from chortle.co.uk, where they're all available, Brendan assures me. Stand and Deliver Meanwhile, we're about to hear from some comedians who do what I would normally call wog comedy. Indeed, I use the term when speaking to one of the comics. But in the course of seeing Brendan Burns live, I realise that I may actually be offending people when I use the term wog comedy, even though I use it self-deprecatingly. You know, like Woody Allen doing Jewish jokes. Or African Americans reclaiming the word Michael Richards has ensured no white man will ever be able to use again. Or sisters reclaiming the word See, Brendan points out that, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let him tell you himself. That spins me out when I hear the wogs, yeah, it's alright, they call themselves wogs, they love it. Wog, yeah, it's, that's what they call themselves, the Greeks, the and Lemos, they're all f***ing, I was watching that Woggy McWoggerton and f***ing Peter Papadopoulos, right, giving them the f***ing wogs are in the town, wog, 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 wogorama, f***ing legends, it's funny, you know, because they're foreign, they're foreign and they're f***ing wogs, it's great, I'm freaked out, because in England, wog <laughs> means something a little different, <laughs> Wog is short for gollywog. I know, boy, did I find out about that my first f***ing day. I'm talking about my mate back in Perth going, ah, oh, Damo, this wog mate of mine. And I'm like, what? Ah! And I'm like, what? He's going, it means gollywog. And I'm like, you know what? I didn't even make that journey. That's pretty f***ing racist. That is so racist, it didn't even occur to me. And I'm Australian. <laughs> That was Brendan Burns helping us come to terms with some of our ingrained bigotry, stuff that we'll explore further when I talk to Brendan in another episode of Stand and Deliver. The rest of this episode deals with the work of comedians who are of foreign heritage in their own country. That is, they're not non-Anglo-Australians, they are in fact non-Anglo-Canadians. I.e. wogs in Canada, but, you know, we've discussed why I should or shouldn't be able to use the word wog and I should just move on. Anyway, these comedians are of foreign heritage within their own country and their humour explores the difference they experience between who they are and where they are and who they are and where their forebears come from. First up is Russell Peters, a Canadian of Indian extraction, and by Indian I mean Asian subcontinent Indian rather than Native American. Russell Peters is a guy who can sell out a theatre tour of Australia purely by word of mouth, no advertising still have a lot of comedy lovers going who's Russell Peters and why haven't I heard of him? His audience so far consists predominantly of non-Anglo Australians and a lot of his material involves doing impressions of people from various other cultures speaking English 
people are essentially laughing at themselves and each other, or at the very least their own parents and other people's parents. Is it racism? There's no hate involved. It's really about love and understanding. Is it funny? It's hilarious. I was at my parents' house about, um, about a month ago, and I was watching TV with my dad, right? We were sitting in the living room watching TV, and we were, they had, like, uh, the gay pride parade was on that weekend. And we're, well, whatever makes you happy. And, um, and, they, uh, and they were showing, they had, like, a live feed. Not, like, a live feed, but, like, they were showing, they were, they were showing the parade, right? They, they were showing it on TV, right? So, oh, would you grow up? All right, so we're watching it, right? We're watching the parade, right? And then all of a sudden, these three gay Indian guys came on the screen, right? I don't mean came on the screen, but I mean they, uh, they, uh, you know, they appeared, right? So, so I'm watching it, right? And these three gay Indian guys are like, hey, we are Indian and we're gay. We represent the gay South Asian community. And my dad looks at me and he goes, that is disgusting. Do you know them? I was like, why the hell would I know them? Because they are of the gay, and you are in the entertainment business. Russell, be honest. Four sold-out shows, no advertising whatsoever. What's your secret? What's going on? If I knew, I would bottle it and sell it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't think um, the media decides who's famous anymore. I think the people decide who they want to be their heroes. But clearly the people are getting hold of you through other avenues. It's, it's the work of the internet, surely. Absolutely. I mean, and again, I had nothing to do with that. I'm not, I'm not the guy who put my stuff on the internet. and I'm the guy who's benefiting from it, but I'm not the guy who did it. And I'd like to meet whoever did it and buy them a nice, happy meal. Now, I know there are some issues at stake as well because you've, you've not really released very much, but there are videos all over the internet of you. Yeah, that's why we're very strict on people trying to record at the shows now because, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much that... I would love for the fans to have something to take home with them. However, with the internet, they can dump it on the internet and people can just um, see your whole act. And then when you go to do the same act the next night, they're not laughing. Mm. So it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it, it can help you and it can also kill you. Chinese people and Indian people cannot do business together. Because Indians cannot live without a bargain, and Chinese people cannot give you a bargain. <laughs> Their objective is to get every penny from you, and ours is to keep every penny. <laughs> There's a really bad power struggle there. I went to this Chinese mall. Some of you may know it, Pacific Mall. That's the wrong place for an Indian guy to go. I saw this bag. I wanted to buy this bag. I go, how much? I go to the Chinese guy behind the counter. How much? He goes... $35. Um, how about 30 And Chinese people will never tell you no. They'll tell you no, the longest no you've ever heard in your life. Like you just said, the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard in their life. I'll give you 30 No. No. I can't do $30. I sell you $30. Today you come tomorrow, I'll close down.
And I'm like, all right, well, then give me a deal on the purse, man. I don't want to pay 35 bucks. Okay, one sec. I talked to my wife. One second. Thank you. Come <laughs> on. Sing, sing, don't go I'm going. Okay. You seem like nice guy. I give you best price. Thirty-four fifty. I'm like, that's fifty cents, man. He goes, fifty cents a lot of money. You save fifty cents here, then maybe you go somewhere else, you save another fifty cents. Then you have one dollar. Then you take your dollar, you go to the dollar store, you buy something else. Now, your style I find quite interesting because you go through a, a whole lot of racial stereotypes and they're, they're the stereotypes that obviously your audience recognises because they laugh at them. They're laughing at each other, but they're also laughing at themselves. Tell me how this style developed. Um, I've always been fascinated by stereotypes. Behind a stereotype is some sort of truth. It has to come from somewhere. I always like to investigate the culture to find out where is that fine line of truth and exaggeration? And then what is true and what is exaggerated? And I like to uh, go down that road. It clearly works for you. Your impressions are brilliant. You sound like everyone you're taking the mickey out of. And yet there's an underlying love behind all the jokes, it seems to me. Is that an accurate description or observation from my part? Well, see, I like it when people understand it. Like when you, you get it. Do you know what I mean? The people that like it are the ones that understand that I'm not doing this to be malicious or to mock you. I'm doing it because I understand you and I want you to know that I understand you. And in understanding you, we can have fun with it. Is that what's ultimately going on? That by exploring cultural differences, you're actually getting closer to what brings us all together? Yeah, I mean, the more we think we're different, I think the more we find out we're just the same. And, uh, you know, one, one group of people may think we only do this and then... Uh, and you find out another group of people who are from a different part of the world do the exact same thing as you. I mean, a lot of, uh, even with words, languages, um, sometimes, like, like the Italian word for, uh, for taking a leak is pishare, right? Yeah. And the Indian word is pishab. <laughs> so, I mean, there, these two countries are miles, you know, not even in the same continent, but they share similar words, and, which means there's a common bond between all, all cultures and all things human. So that was Russell Peters literally taking the piss. I, I was really taking the piss just now. <laughs> you know, it was wicked when I went to Italy. This freaked me out. Brown people, you got to go to Italy to mess them up. I went to Italy. The Italians thought I was Italian. <laughs> and I didn't have the heart to tell them I wasn't Italian, right? Because it seemed kind of cool to be Italian for a little while. So they started speaking Italian to me. <laughs> then it just looked like I was retarded, you know, because... They're walking out to you on the street. A signore, sono dove credici, posso godonte, posso timbre di dote, briti. Temperione, che timbre di dote. Si. Si, man. Then when I told the guy was Indian, he would freak out. Indiano? No, Indiano. No, Indiano. Mario, che cazzo va Indiano? No, no, Indiano. Like I told him I was a freaking ghost or something. No. Because they can't picture Indian people that are just normal over there, you know? And in their heads, Indian people are... Then we show up and shatter their miserable dream for them. I kind of imagine that to, to get to a point in your career where 
you found your voice doing that sort of material that appeals to such a wide range of different people must have taken time. When you started out, did you try to be yet another comic on the comedy circuit? I mean, did it take you a while to find out that the sort of material you, you ought to be doing is what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really did just start. In, I started doing stand-up in 89, and I just wanted to be a comic. I just wanted to get on stage and make people laugh. I didn't know what direction I wanted to go in. I didn't know what style of material I wanted to do. I knew who I liked. I liked George Carlin and Cheech and Chong and Steve Martin and Don Rickles and all the old school cats. I, I, I liked them, but that didn't mean I could do their style of comedy. I'm not, you know, I'm not a linguist like George Carlin is, and I'm not as silly as Steve Martin is, and I'm not a stoner like Cheech and Chong. And, and Don Rickles is a guy that really appealed to me because he kind of was insulting but not offensive. Do you know what I mean? I tried to basically take elements of each guy that I liked and uh, build myself out of it. Did it take a while to find your voice such that it is? I would say, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I sort of got on track, I think, maybe around four or five years into the game, sort of figuring out what direction I'm heading in. And then it, I spent the next, you know, 10 to 13 years honing that style. And I still feel like I am still, you know, polishing the floor on that one you know what i mean i think that's one thing that separates immigrant families from the regular canadian families you know doesn't matter where your parents are from they weren't born in this country they will whoop your ass when you're growing up won't they <laughs> it doesn't matter where are your parents from ukraine you know what i'm saying they'll beat you with a cabbage roll you know what i'm saying they'll, they'll smack a pierogi upside your head if they have to <laughs> they'll beat you right immigrant parents will beat their kids Canadian parents are a little too soft on their kids. And that's fine, you know, whatever makes you happy. But you need to start beating your kids. I'll tell you why. When kids now are growing up in a multicultural society. You know, you're going to have white kids growing up with black kids and brown kids and Asian kids, and they're all going to be hanging out in the playground. You know what I mean? And they're going to be talking about the ass whooping they got last night. Do you want that little white kid to feel left out? Beat that child so he's not a social outcast. We'll be sitting around, man, my dad beat my ass. My dad beat my ass, too. And white kid be like, I got sent to my room. Well, I'd be like, you've got a room? Important question. For a comedian that uh, takes apart his own heritage so well, how do your parents and your family uh, regard what it is you do for a living? They love it, actually, now. It's funny. Um, my mom was at my show last night, the late show last night, and she was at the shows in Melbourne as well. My mom has become a big supporter of my act, and I used to be very shy about performing in front of my parents because, uh, you know, the language and the content and stuff like that. But then my mom just said, listen, when I'm in the audience, I don't want you to do anything you don't normally do. Just do your act. And I said, as long as you understand that that's what I do on stage, I, I don't talk like that in front of you, Mom. My dad thought punani was a tropical fruit. <laughs> it is, if you think about it. <laughs> For the older white folks that look confused right now, uh, punani is the Jamaican word for a woman's... You know what I'm saying? For her pum-pum. My dad thought it was a tropical fruit. One time when I was a kid, I was sick, and I was messing around with my dad. He came to me and goes, oh, my God, son, you're sick. What can I get you? I go, Dad, I love Punani. <laughs> my dad went to the Jamaican store. <laughs> hey, lady, where's your Punani? <laughs> my son is at 
home sick. He needs punani right now. Give me two. Is it right? Let me squeeze it. No, no, no seeds. Now the next thing is, you you said as part of your show that uh, you're actually going to India. Uh, is it your first visit to India? It really is. It's my first time in 17 years of doing stand-up performing in India, and uh, I'm nervous as hell about it because uh, a lot of my jokes, like I said, a lot of my jokes have to do with the punchline is, you know, the Indian accent. <laughs> and when I'm in India, I'm the only guy without that accent, <laughs> so they're going to be laughing for completely different reasons, <laughs> if at all. Well, it will be hard because I imagine where a lot of your humour comes from is from that disjunction between the country you're in and the country that your parents are from. So it's it's that that kind of middle ground where you're not quite this and you're not quite that, where so much of it comes from. Is that something you thought about, or, or am I making you even more nervous just saying that? Um, you have ruined this trip for me, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know when I bomb in India. Um, no, I you know I I I'm, I'm aware of it. And, and here's the problem that I think. It's not that I don't think they'll understand what I'm saying. I don't think they'll get it. Because they understand English just fine. Um, they'll understand what I'm saying. I don't know if they will know why it's funny. Yeah, because they won't have had that same experience. But I imagine that you'll find other things from being there that will become the show. Absolutely. I think I'm going to have to approach it from the uh, perspective of being an outsider who is Indian, who is not Indian... Who is, you know, I'm gonna have just. I'm just gonna have to approach it from the question standpoint, as opposed to me getting on stage and pontificating. You know, I'm gonna have to just get up there and go, listen, what is going on? <laughs> With, you know, who are the? I'm, I'm getting in a week early to India just so I have time to climatize and walk around and just see what the people do. As a comedian, is this the biggest challenge you've given yourself? I'm. I, I'm gonna. Th- I think it is right now. It's. It may sound like an easy task, but I don't think it's that easy, you know. I mean, we do have, like, a big fan base in India right now that we're finding out about. And these are, I think these are, my demographic in India, I think, is very young. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's very young. I can't see it being the older folks. I can't see it be people my age. I'm thinking it's teenagers and and, uh, young adults, you know. And uh, hopefully there's no age restriction, otherwise we'll have empty theaters. Russell Peters, all I can say is good luck with it and thank you very much. Thanks, Dom. You're a hell of a guy. Now put your pants back on. (laughs) That was Canadian comic Russell Peters. I caught up with him somewhere in the middle of 2006 during a season of shows at Newtown's Enmore Theatre in inner city Sydney. The live comedy sound bites you heard were grabbed off the internet with Russell's encouragement, I can't actually say permission, but he said, you know, I had nothing to do with them getting on there. They kind of build my audience. I wish I was making money out of them. In my defence, I can say that I didn't use anything from his newest release, Outsourced, which was in fact recorded on that tour of Australia. And you really ought to own a copy of Outsourced on CD or DVD. It's available now through Warners. Stand and deliver. Ooh, stand and deliver. 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 
after that mid-2006 tour that Russell Peters undertook, he did return to Australia later in the year, supported by a Greek-Canadian comic called Evangelos Petros Sadoukas, better known as Angelo Sadoukas. Angelo's about to return to Australia to headline his own tour. Now, Angelo's a stogie-chomping, imposing figure of a man. He's quite tall and quite beefy. Fat and funny, let's just say. And as a result, he automatically gets compared to comedians like Chris Farley. Fact is, he looks like he just stepped out of an episode of The Sopranos. I caught up with him for a chat, but it's preceded by a spot of comedy that, like all the other soundbites throughout the interview, is taken from his album It's All Greek to Me. My Greek Orthodox Christian name is Evangelos Petros Tsaroukas. That's my name. My parents' names are Peter and Debbie. Let's name the kids Evangelos Petros Sarukas. We'll call ourselves Peter and Debbie. My parents come from the little country in the Mediterranean called Greece. They move to Canada. They decide to have children. And they ask themselves, how can we make our little Greek children fit in with the Canadian children. I know, we'll name them like diseases. That's what we'll do. Tsarukas? You have Tsarukas? Put some cream on it. Put some cream on it. It's funny because uh, when, I, when I first got into doing comedy, they said, well, you know, Tsarukas. I mean, wow, it's a T-S. You know, A-R-O-U-C-H-A-S. And they'd, they'd always screwed up, like Tizaraka Chukas or Tizakakarakas or, you know, it's, it's, and that's where I got the joke, it sounds like a disease. And, I, and it's funny because they always said, you know, oh, you should change your name. And in retrospect, you know, after, you know, Big Fat Greek Wedding came out, having a Greek name helped. All of a sudden you were getting bookings going, hey, you're Greek, you're a comedian. We want to we want to see you. When you were starting out, I mean, I consider as a kid, you would have used your humour to defend yourself in the playground, all of that sort of thing that a lot of us second-generation wogs in our respective countries tend to do. Is that part of how you discovered your identity and your pride in your identity <coughs> as a Greek comedian? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, you know, it's funny because when you're going out, you know, when you're when you're speaking Greek uh, or Italian at home. And then you got to go to school, and then you're immersed in an English society, and, and a different way of thinking. You know, they always say, "Well, you know, you look white, but for some reason, you have the, the food you're eating is different, and you, and, and and the way you react to stuff is different." And and that's what I realized. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, as a kid, our parents were scared that you know they came to a new country, they didn't want their children to lose their identity. They felt in some way that they may have failed. <clears throat> and I started, you know, rather than get into fights with the kids because you'd pound them out all the time, uh, you start making, you know, jokes and making fun. And then it, it, it evolved in high school. And that's when I realized, hey, you know what? It's okay to be who you are. I remember once the teacher, we came after class and we had to tell everybody what we had for lunch. What'd you have for lunch? Peanut butter and jam. What'd you have for lunch? We had, you know, a little croissant. Angela, what did you have for lunch? Fuck yes! <laughs> Excuse me? Fuck ass! You go down to the principal's office right now. You still got away 50. Ah, fuck ass! 
for this? How about the thing that, um, like for a time when you're getting into comedy, you want to try and fit into the comedy scene and you might want to try and do mainstream material and so you realise actually it's better to set yourself <coughs> apart from the comedy scene. How did that work for you? Good question. Okay, uh, you see the problem was all the other kids would go to cottages and, uh, you know, they go camping and all this stuff. We never did that stuff. So, you know, our parents were very protective. I used to work at my dad's diner. If we were going to go anywhere, it was going to go to Greece so we can get our brain washed out. <laughs> that we are Greek and go visit my grandmother and nine million relatives I didn't know existed. My nana is Yaya. Uh, we ate different foods. Our Easter is different. Everything, there's a lot of things that were different about us, but it didn't mean it was bad. And, and, and the one thing, the best advice a comedian once told me was, you know, Angie goes, talk about what you know. And, and, and if you talk about what you know and the truth, and if it's funny, it'll come out. And I think sometimes comedians tend to think, well, the popular things talk about deaf people or gay people or, or <clears throat> you know, uh, hurricanes or tsunamis. No, no, I think you should talk about what you, is true to you and what makes it funny. And then you find in the world there's other people who subscribe to that humor going, hey, I get that because that was me. So how was the process of discovering that, you know, that what you knew you could be funny about and still appeal to an audience, even though you were different to other people and other comics, say, when you were coming through? Well, it's a good question because I felt, even as a comedian starting up in the comedy clubs in Canada, I felt, oh, do I got to fit in here again? You know, I felt like I was back at school. Oh, should I talk about this other kind of stuff? And then I realized, no. I got to talk about who I am and what I am and why. And then it's, that material is going to relate to other people who understand what you're doing. But you know, and, uh, when we got to high school, we had a course called Home Economics Class. I don't know if they had it here. Home Economics Class is basically a class you take so you can learn about when you live on your own, when you go to university, Stopanapistimio, uh, you learn how to cook, you learn how to clean. You know, we, you, for the Greek kids, it was kind of hard. Especially for the Greek boys. I have to what? When I go to university, my mother's coming with me. We learn things in home economics class, right? We learn things like, you know, how to make food. And this is the bowl. And the bowl is used to hold the food. It's the bowl. And this is a grater, the trifti. So you can put cheese on it and carrots. And this is the wooden spoon. And every Greek kid in the class is like, no, it's not. That's the kutala. That's the kutala that my mother uses to break over my golo. How does it translate, like, for example, from Canada to Australia or from Canada to the UK, where you've had experience of playing to other second-generation ethnic groups in an English-speaking country? It's been amazing. I, you know, I was working uh, with Russell Peters in Singapore, Singapore of all places, and his audience is a very you know, distinct um, Asian audience, uh, Indian and Chinese, and they love the Greek stuff. I was in South Africa at the festival, and I was doing the one. I did my one-man show that I'll be doing here when I come up, and and um, the all Greek to me show, and it got held over for two extra weeks. 
you do material in Greek to a Greek Canadian or a Greek Australian or a Greek English audience. Have you done material in Greek to a Greek audience in Greece? I don't think, and this is my general opinion, my act would work in Greece because the Greeks in Greece live in Greece. They don't understand what it means to be Greek living outside in the diaspora. <clears throat> so for them, if I did the jokes about my mother yelling, calling me in the house, they're looking at me going, well, that's us. What's funny about that? Yeah, right. There's no contrast between the two. You know, where outside of Greece, we're going, well, it's funny because the English kids, their mothers would be calm and polite and our mothers would be screaming and yelling and throwing shit at us, you know. I would like to try it, but I don't know what their reaction would be. I don't know what the reaction of my big fat Greek wedding was. Growing up in Canada, remember that serene moment when you were playing street hockey with the kids? The little kind of the Zakia, you know? <laughs> you play street hockey where, you know, and then the mothers would come out to call the children and for supper. Yeah, you know, Bobby's mother would come out nice. Bobby! Come on in, honey. Time for supper. <laughs> Jeffrey's mother would come out. Jeffrey! It's time to eat supper, honey. Come on. My Greek mother would come out of the house. Holding the scupa. Wearing the roba with the curlers in her hair. All the kids are like, what's wrong with that Greek woman? I don't know, she's retarded, drop the puck. I don't feel 100% Greek in Canada, and I don't feel 100% Greek in Greece. So we're in the middle. We're in this gray area I call the ethno-gray area. So that's where the humor works. It's for us, people like us, who had to grow up outside, hanging on to this idea of the old country, which is wonderful, but at the same time where I feel sometimes I'm Canadian. I was born in Canada. I'm proud to say I'm Canadian. But sometimes I just don't, I don't see the things the way everybody else sees them. But then I'll go to Greece and it's the same thing. So we're kind of caught in the middle. And that's where the audience is. I think that's where there's a lot of people like me, like you, who are like, yeah, you're right, you know. I can uh, go to Greece and, and try to tell my jokes to them. They could get it, but they may think, oh, these, these guys are morons. Tell me a bit about your, your development as a comedian. When you were <clears throat> a kid, being funny amongst your peers, do you remember the first time you went, actually, I have a bit of power when I can make these guys laugh? It's funny, I, I think... Uh, I think humor's like crack. People get addicted to it. They like it. Girls like it. Your friends like it. <clears throat> I think if you're if you could if you have a sense of humor and you can see the the funny and stuff, or just not necessarily be on with your act, but just be gregarious or just funny, or um, absurd at times. I think people like that. They want to be around people like that. I think we we work in jobs where people are stoic or you know. Uh, you know, you're working with people where there's a lot of miserable people in the world. There really is. 
And people don't take the time out to laugh. When you laugh, you release endorphins and it makes you feel good. And I think somebody works at a bank or something all day, they've got to be very rigid. And, and then when they, you know, you hang around with an idiot like me, and then all of a sudden we're, we're joking around, hey, what's going on? What's going on? This and that. And, and you're doing things you shouldn't do. It makes people laugh because they're like, hey, this is fun, you know. But, um, you got to know your limits sometimes too, you know. Guy, you know, his girlfriend leaves him. You don't want to be cutting jokes right away. You want to wait at least a day. <laughs> <laughs> Angelo Tsurokas, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, uh, Don, Dom. Nice to be on your show, man. Did you guys see that wonderful movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Wasn't that a wonderful film? Good for her. Nia Vardalos, girl from Winnipeg. Did us all proud, man. That's the highest grossing independent film ever made, man. That's why she stuck to her guns and she's gonna be up for an Oscar now. It's great. I have a problem with that movie. <laughs> they shot it in Toronto. I'm an actor. I went for a part in that movie. You know what they said to me? You don't look Greek enough. I go, look at me. I'm big, I'm fat, and I'm Greek. I'm three words in the title. <laughs> That was, of course, my chat with Greek-Canadian comedian Angelo Sodoukas, who I caught up with while he was touring in support of Russell Peters late in 2006. He's coming back to Australia soon, bringing his show It's Greek to Me to the Melbourne Comedy Theatre on February 14th and Sydney's Enmore Theatre on February 19th. And the CD and DVD of the show It's All Greek to Me are currently available from Angelo's website, www.funnygreek.com. Well, that's about it for this episode of Stand and Deliver. I'll try to ensure that it's not another four weeks before the next one, but until then, bye now. Fucking furries, baby. No fucking 